Hello and welcome to episode 29 of the Telling the Story podcast, a look at how journalists and everyone reach the world. I am Matt Pearl, author of the Telling the Story blog and a reporter at NBC in Atlanta. You know I love talking about storytelling, and part of that is talking about language and technology. Very few people know as much about both and write as well about both as my guest today. He is a writer for, among other publications, Wired and New York Times Magazine. He's also the author of the book Smarter Than You Think. Clive Thompson, welcome to the Telling the Story podcast. Hi, how are you doing? Doing very well. Thanks for uh, for coming on. And, you know, I've, I've read a lot of your work recently, and it's always very inventive, very well written. But one thing that comes through is your enthusiasm about the way our world is changing, whether it's language or, or whether it's technology. Uh, back in March, I shouted you out for a piece you wrote on the website Medium, which in itself is very much a, an, an evolution, uh, a sign of our evolution technologically. And you wrote about the way we're all writing now. You talked about how our sentences, especially in texts and in images, have become so abbreviated. And you really break down the changes in our collective syntax. Talk a little bit about that for folks who haven't read the article and kind of your point of view in writing about it. Sure. So this all started when uh, I guess I had been noticing a kind of an interesting trend in the way people – uh, the, the way that they communicate and write on various social media platforms, um, ranging from Twitter to, uh, to you know, sort of things, um, uh, you know, tech messages you'll see sometimes appended to pictures on, on Instagram uh, or Yik Yak, which is sort of an anonymous geolocated thing that a lot of younger people use to, to talk anonymously about subjects. And I've been noticing – here's what I've been noticing – um, and you, as soon as I describe it, you'll you'll have seen it too. It's it's people making a status update or a statement that it feels like it's only part of a sentence. Like someone would go, "That feeling when you wake up and realize you slept in," uh, or or they would go, you know, say something like, um, "When you race down." to reach the subway and see the train leaving the platform. Uh, you know, it, it was it, like it's just sort of a part of a sentence like that. It's intended to communicate something to put you in a situation, but it's not. It's really not a full sentence. And this is a very, very common thing over and over again. So I started to think, this is super interesting. When did this start happening? Why do people like it? And what's going on linguistically? What, you know, <clears throat> if it's become a big trend, if people use it a lot, it must be because it satisfies some sort of communication need, right? You know, these things these things emerge for a reason, and the fun part is figuring out what the reasons might be. So, so I started uh, calling up uh, linguists I know who 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 pay specific attention to kind of like you know internet speak, right? Like you know the type of language you see used, uh, you know, in, in chat, in messaging, in social networks, and. Uh, and uh, and I had and basically you know I, I talked to you know Ben Zimmer he's a he's a guy who writes for the Wall Street Journal and for Vocabulary.com and Gretchen McCullough who has written uh, prodigiously about language and thought about this and so I chatted with them and and what came up was that you know really it's it's this very interesting thing which is it's it's a uh, it's a it's a um, it's it's a dependent clause is officially what it's called uh, um, because it's a part of a sentence that depends on something else. But you're but the person is being very sly when they write these sentences. They're not actually saying the thing that it depends on. Like for example, you know, uh, there's someone who wrote, you know, you know, uh, on Yikek, I saw this this funny statement that was, you know, when you 
see a picture of her holding her dog on Tinder and you're like, cute dog. Um, <laughs> right. And, and, so, and, you, and you say like, you know, and, and, you know, really the full sentence would be something like, you know, uh, you know, uh, it's a bittersweet feeling when you see someone holding a dog Right. Uh, on their phone. The implication and, 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 is a universal emotion. Yeah, anyway. exactly. The person is, and really, what, what these linguists said is, the person's trying to when they're, when they're doing that. They're first off, they're creating kind of a little puzzle because you have to fill in the gap. You have to fill in what's not said. So it's sort of like it draws the reader of that utterance in a little bit, right? You know, to try and complete, you know, what that sentence is saying. And secondarily, like, you know, exactly like you said, it's also trying to make it sort of a universal emotion. It's trying to like say, this is not something that happened to me. This is something that happens to everyone. This is the feeling when this happens to you. This is that moment when, right? Because they're not saying this happened to me or I have that experience. They're, they're making it this kind of funny, like universal statement. Um, so there's a bunch of these really interesting reasons. And you know, this is a really weird thing to do because, you know, as these linguists point out, you know, we have a long history of slang, right? Slang goes back centuries, you know, centuries and centuries of slang. It's very common for us to create slang, and it's very common for new technologies to create new types of slang, you know? Like, uh, uh, we got a lot of net slang, we got funny new words, we got contractions like LOL, uh, um, you know, and whatnot. But this is different, because this is people mucking around with what makes a sentence a sentence. This is them, this is them right. you know, it's kind of screwing around with syntax, not just not just words, but the actual the, the structure of a sentence, and this and so and and the funny thing is like no one could really say why this is happening, right? I mean, you know, my hypothesis is I think it's because we've had this massive shift in the last fifteen years, um, where suddenly the average person does tons more writing, like that people did not do. You know, most journalists have trouble appreciating this, but the average person, you know, before the internet came along, when they left high school. They left college. And they wrote their papers for high school. They wrote their papers for college. But after they graduated, they really did basically no writing for the rest of their lives. Maybe some memos for work. That was it. Now people write prodigiously, and they write about weird things. Like they write about things they would never. They might have written a memo about paperclip appropriations for their for their company, but they were not going to write their thoughts about a movie or or something I saw or an article or a, or an anime they're they're looking at. They wouldn't have had these discussions of their emotions. So because we've had this shift where so much more conversational stuff is happening in the written form, I think it's almost like an evolutionary pressure to um, pushing language forward into new areas because the pace of experimentation is higher. You know, that, that, that volume of writing is, so it is allowing way more experiments to happen way more quickly than ever could happen before. That's, that's sort of my hypothesis. I can't prove it, but that's what I think is going on. You know? <laughs> well, it would also seem like the, the pace of writing is quickening in large part because we do so much more of it, there's so much more commonality to it. And if you look at social media as we see it today, everything is getting so much faster. Even yep. Facebook and, and Instagram, it's, it's yep. you know, you see so many photos now where it's just a few words, but those words get the point across. Twitter, obviously, the character limit. You see it so much. And maybe that's where you can get away with truncating sentences, at least informally, because of the way that yep. there is more yep. of that universal feel. Yeah, well, there's, there's a couple things going on. One is that um, because there's more writing going on, there's more experimentation. Um, the other thing that's happening is that we're it's networked writing right it's 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 writing intended to be seen by other people uh it's we're not writing in diaries like if we were all writing in diaries and we couldn't see what everyone else is doing you would not see an evolution of language quite so quickly because the experiments would all be sealed off onto their own but because right. 
I can see what what you're doing, and you can see the jokes I'm making, and I can see the kind of funny things that she's saying. We, you know, we we learn very quickly. Oh, that was a great thing. I'm going to try that. Oh, and he did that. I'm going to riff off that. So that, that that's really this is you know this is you know in almost an evolutionary biology sense. This is an environment right for rapid evol- evolution and mutation and uh, and and creation of crazy new things. Um, so that's part of the reason you know you're going to see it more. It's because the writing is happening in public in a way that it wasn't before. Um, um, and 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 as you point out, it's happening more quickly. Now, the point you made about about visual stuff is really interesting too, right? Because you know, a lot of these funny jokes or ideas or thoughts or memes or trends, you know, they're textual, but some they're often visual too. Someone will, you know, like do an image meme, you know, which is a picture with text on it. And in fact, right. a, a lot of these, a lot of these, that moment when, that feeling when, you know, when you do this, a lot of that kind of dependent clause me- memory has actually grown up around uh, text on top of a picture. So sometimes the picture is filling in additional information, right? It's create, it's, it's creating uh, like this, this, it, it, this, this melange of visual and textual communication, which itself is such a weird new thing, right? Because you know, you know, when the book came along, I mean, it's interesting if you go back and look at human writing before the Gutenberg press, right? So, you know, before the 15th century, 13th century right. and back, you see, you see an awful lot of mixing of imagery and text. There's like, like it was very habitual for, you know, if you go back and look at the scribes, you know, the book of Kells, all these things, you know, <laughs> there was a lot of, there was ornate pictures and text, you know, there was, there was, the, the idea was that text and pictures were always used together at the same time. They reinforced each other. They were artistically reinforcing, culturally reinforcing, semantically reinforcing. Um, but because with the Gutenberg press, the idea was to standardize the way text is printed, um, you know, you, you, you move both type, you know, you moved the font, you move the, the words around on the plates and you could very quickly crap out books really quickly. So the advantage was suddenly we could make a lot of books really quickly, enormous cognitive explosion, right? This allows for, you know, the expression of thought on a scale never before, but it tamps down the use of pictures because it's very quick to move the, the letters around to, re, to reformat them to make a new page and, and stamp that. It's very difficult and slow to add pictures. You, you, know, you have to engrave an image, right? That's really oh, slow. Yeah. Right. So, so the Gutenberg Press produced an explosion of words, but it killed the previously vibrant culture of the use of imagery as a communication device. And it sort of, and it sort of died for a very long time. Like, it's not that there weren't pictures in books. There certainly were. But... Um, but, you know, it was it was often relegated to kids books, you know, like the idea or scientific things that needed illustrations. The idea was that adult like it created this 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 um, forward thrust, this affordance for text and text only. And that started to become the signature of, quote unquote, serious thought, text and text only. So what starts happening when you have the Internet that comes along is the Internet doesn't care whether you're communicating in text or images or audio or video, it just those are all bits and those can all be delivered equally alongside each other, right? So now we have the ability, we, we, we're beginning to see the resurgence of uh, the use of visual uh, pictures and imagery alongside text that essentially has been dormant for 500 years and it's coming oh, back wow. out again and it's super interesting, right? And, that's, and, that's really fascinating. And, and, yes. and we still don't really know I mean, we're still fumbling around in this. Like, this is the early, early days. I think it'll take decades or even longer to really begin to build, to, to rebuild out, you know, what is visual imagery 
what what is visual imagery good for? What what's it used for? Um, what's it bad? What's it bad at? What should we not use it for? These are you're you're seeing a million crazy experiments, and but we're really in the early days of this of this of this of this shift. It's very interesting, though. This is the Telling the Story podcast. I'm Matt Pearl. He is Clive Thompson, writer for numerous publications and author of the book Smarter Than You Think. And you know, all of these changes, who knows what will stick? But certainly. You would imagine the the stereotype of a linguist is probably someone who would be more resistant to those kinds of changes and more (laughs) treasuring of the history. You, however, when I read your work, there is such an enthusiasm for watching these changes unfold and wondering which ones will stick, which ones won't, and kind of being on that roller coaster ride. Has that always been the case for you? Is that is that has that been a uh, through line throughout your career? No, actually, the funny thing is. uh, so I got into technology writing uh, in the early to mid '90s. Uh, I'm 46, 47 now. So I was, um, you know, I was like, uh, um, I'm 46. What am I saying? I'm losing track. Of this. Uh, I'm 46. <laughs> I was going to say happy birthday. Thank you. I, I um, I um. So I started in my mid 20s, you know, and I started writing about this. My my initial thoughts when the internet first became mainstream in like 94, 95, people are getting email, people are going on to Usenet news groups, people are starting to very publish the very prototypical websites. My first instinct was this is going to be absolutely terrible for culture because I thought the average person was so stupid they should never be allowed online. It was going to corrode all standards of quality and idiocy was going to drown out the good stuff and we'd never be able to sort through uh, um, the, the morass of of, of publishing, um, and uh, you know, like many, you do have, by the way, twenty years later, there are plenty of critics who say that yeah, that no, has no, no, in no, fact ex- happened. No, exactly. Well, this is the funny thing. My evolution has been exactly the opposite of most a lot of these other critics. So, so, but you know, so you know, like many twenty five year old men, I, I had a very <laughs> Very confident in my view of the world, right? You know, <laughs> I, yes, I have all the answers. Just ask me. Um, but you know, but here's the thing: like, I, I, I was, I wanted to be, and I was beginning, my, my beginning to start my career as a, as a long form magazine journalist, and so, and I wanted to write about these 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 shifts in technology that I thought were going to be disastrous for society. But long form magazine journalism is all about, you know, well, the type of stuff that I want to do. Anyway, it was all about deeply reported stuff right so i uh, you know so uh, every time a new technology would come along i would go out and i would talk to dozens of people i'd do tons of reporting to try and document all this incredible idiocy that i was convinced was going to be unleashed right but <laughs> but every time but every time i went out and wrote about it i kept on discovering that people were doing things that were much more um interesting and creative and playful and thoughtful um, than I than I could have predicted just sitting at my desk and stroking my chin and worrying about society, right? Mm. And so, yeah. you know, for example, like um, uh, in I guess around the the, the mid to late, it gets sort of mid late nineties, like ninety six, ninety seven, instant messaging starts becoming a big thing, right? Because you have AOL Instant Messenger. It used to be something that was just inside internally to AOL's walled garden, like inside AOL you could chat with other people. But they finally realized this was such a big popular thing they should make it a standalone application so that anyone could download it and use it and it explodes in usage and people are like AOL instant messaging all day long so I look at this and my first thought is like like I made the typical mistake that a lot of sort of very pessimistic people take, which is thinking that every new form of technology is just a devolved, worse version of something that we did better in the past. So I looked, sure. I looked at instant messaging and I thought, well, just these short little 
messages going back and forth really quickly with almost no time. It, like, isn't this just a worse version of email, which itself was a worse version of handwriting letters, you know? Um, <laughs> and so, but, but, I, but I would talk to people and I would watch them using its messaging and they were all like, no, no, no. This is, this is allowing for a type of conversation that was previously impossible because it, it for example, in this, they would they were saying this in like 19, you know, 98, 99, for example, they would tell me, you know, it allows me to, um, to, uh, um, you know, like uh, to, to, to have something that's almost the rapid fire pace of sitting at the table with someone and talking. Um, but it's a little bit slower because it gives me a chance to sort of think about what I'm typing. So it's, you know, it's faster than writing a letter, but it's slower than conversation. It, they, 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 people love that it was almost the perfect midpoint. They could be more clever than they, than they were when they're face to face because they could think of something really funny or witty to say, right? Cause they, they had, they had one minute, they had a minute or two minutes to think about it. Right. Um, it also let, they said they would have these conversations, they, they discovered that they would have conversations that would go on for a very long time because, you know, they might start chatting about a movie or a TV show in the morning with someone, at, they're, they're at work and someone, they're, you know, they're, they're partners at a different company and they would talk for an hour and they get interrupted to get into work and then four hours later, they would go back and they would see the old message and they'd just start talking about it again and then right, they get interrupted. Right. Maybe, they, maybe a day later, they would come back to it again. They, they started discovering that they could actually have these, these deep conversations that would go on for very long time even if they were interrupted so that was really it, it was like you know it was like it was like it, it, a type of a type of attention being paid to a conversation that could not have been paid before um and they also enjoyed the feeling of sort of proximity like people would talk about something this became my this this later a decade later you know or almost 15 years later my book became my discussion of ambient awareness um which is they discovered that there was something um intimate in a good way feeling about the buddy list, because you could see when people went offline and when they went online, it was like someone walking in or leaving a room. And in fact, actually, the AOL um, sound back then, they played a sound. When, the, when someone came online, there was a creak of a door opening, as if someone literally had walked in the room. And when they left, there was a the sound of a door slamming. Um, right. So, so it, it was intended to – it gave these wonderful cues of feeling like you were in a room with all – the, the favorite smart people that you might want to talk to. So I came running back to my desk. And I, <laughs> I wrote this piece saying, well, you know, instant messaging is really interesting. It's very, it's very different. To, it's, a, it's, a, it's a qualitatively different form of communication. It's related to what we did before, but it tweaks it in an interesting new way. So the, this is just a little story, but basically this happened every single time a technology came along, whether it was the mobile yeah. phone or, the, or digital cameras or, in, or you know, or, 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 or uh, uh, you know, Facebook, until eventually, like 20 years later, I'm like, wow, you know, like, this is just perennially surprising. And I think, and I think, the th so what rescued me, really, from my sort of grim, you know, uh, prognosis was reality. You know, I went out there and I reported it and I saw it was happening and it just, it, 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 it did not, you know, uh, um, cohere with my pessimistic vision. And I don't think it does today either. In fact, one thing I noticed today, you know, you open up, you'll, you'll read your typical, you know, sort of woe betide us um, op-ed piece in a newspaper. And, you know, half more than I got, I'd say almost 90% of the time, you know, there's no evidence. This person is just saying this stuff sitting at their desk. They haven't talked to anyone. They haven't done any research. And if they actually went up there and did the reporting, they discovered things are much more complicated and interesting than these very, um, you know, purse-lipped assessments of how dumb everyone out there is online. Um, well, it does seem like you have a, a kind of a, a two-pronged approach to it because I know uh, in, in the other article that I shouted out from you earlier this year was about the evolution of printing and the copier and you were talking about what the 3d printer yes. might have in store for us and in order to do that you 
really looked back at how everyone responded initially to the 2D printer, which I thought was such a fascinating approach. And it does seem like that with yes. that along with this desire to see what's coming, there's also the the perspective of rooting that in what's happened in the past. And, you know, almost yeah. learning from history to project the future. Yeah, no, that's precisely it. In fact, actually, um, that column that I write for Smithsonian, I started it about a year ago, and basically every month I do the similar type of thing. I, I, I take a deep dive into some technology that emerged in the past to so look at how it was received, um, how people reacted to it, what people did with it on an everyday basis. Like, you know, not like companies and business, but how did it affect everyday life um, as a way to try and understand something that's emerging today, right? So in that case, I was looking at the photocopier and the, and the ability for people to suddenly massively duplicate information to think about the 3D printer as a way to duplicate 3D objects. Um, and now this, and interestingly, th this column sort of came out of my book because with my book, I started, I got very interested as I, I was trying to think about what what these technologies are doing to everyday life. And I realized, you know, I, and I'd always read a little bit of history of technology, but I got really deep into it when I read my, wrote my book and I read tons and tons of history. And, it, and because it was fascinating to see how similar um, our patterns are. And, and I found this actually, um, uh, you know, encouraging and, and hopeful because every time new communications technologies have come along, ranging from the written word to, you know, to the Gutenberg press, to the library, to the photocopier, to um, the telephone, to the phonograph, we've very frequently had this same sort of curve of response. You know, we, we, we start off being, you know, really excited about these crazy new things we can do. And then we're sort of terrified and freaked out because it seems to uncork a whole new, uh, um, you know, sort of geyser of expression. We're like, wow, isn't this just, isn't this terrible that there's sort of too much stuff or there's overly intimate stuff or there's TMI or whatever it is, you know, or we're losing, okay. we're losing the orient, the, the, we're losing something about the way we did things in the past. And then we sort of figure out some way to tame it, um, to domesticate it and to, and to, you know, um, reduce the, the inevitable downsides because every new technology of communication has some terrible things it does. We figure out how to sort of mitigate those downsides and how to, op, you know, sort of work with the most delightful um, and valuable things of it. And, over, and, and, and sometimes this can take decades, right? I mean, the other thing it, I realized, it sort of made me patient, right? You know, a lot of the times a technology comes out and people are like, you know, within a, one week, they're like, this is awful and it's going to be this awful forever. And I'm like, no, 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 no. The, what we're doing with this tool right now, two weeks into it, is not what we're going to be doing you know, one year, five years, 10 years, or if it's still around 30 years from now, like, you know, kind of like what people are saying about the Apple watch right now, really. Yeah. Yeah. Precisely. Yeah, the Apple watch is like, is people are like, you know, wow, this, isn't this just going to be a whole new bunch of distractions and, and, and crazy weird narcissistic behavior. And I'm like, you know, like uh, uh, certainly it's almost certain to create some terrible new behaviors. Every, every new technology does. Um, but you know, but you know, it's probably, It'll probably take us, you know, some years to even begin to spy what the what the what the real value, if there is any, uh, for it will be, right? Um, and in fact, and people are envisioning the the watch as an extension of the phone, so they're thinking about apps on their phone and wondering, well, how would that work for a watch? Right. But in reality, what will what will come through the watch will probably be probably be something very different that yeah. is not that we yeah. haven't seen on the phone. Yeah, exactly. I mean, like like the watch will survive and thrive. If it can do something that we find useful uh, or or diverting or delightful, uh, um, uh, that is that that is new and isn't really something you can achieve with a phone or a computer or a TV or a book, right? Um, right. And 
uh, at the moment, you know, I haven't seen that. But keep in mind, like the, the iPhone itself had almost no apps for like a year. You know, like 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 right. pe- people bought like nine months, ten months, uh, one year into the phone, the app store had almost no. I don't think it was there an app store. I, yeah, there probably was. There's nothing on it. Like people had were <laughs> spending five hundred dollars for these crazy phones that basically just had a web browser, email, and text messaging. And and you know, and and even I was looking at it and going, what the heck is going on here? Why are people spending so much money on these crazy things? And it really wasn't until they sort of threw open. The gates to allow you know tens of thousands of developers to just throw all the pasta at the wall to see what stuck, and you know and really and you know over like you know a nine year eight year period you know you know probably a dozen things really 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 stuck, uh, and that transformed what that what that device became useful for. Um, so you know you know a watch or wearable computer you know will live or die by the same process. Um, and and I'm still I'm still I'm still uncertain whether or not there's anything there. But I've also learned, you know, over the years to sort of take a wait and see approach. You know, I mean, like the one thing I think the other thing that's been very useful with my journalism, I guess, is because I sort of wound up writing for monthly and weekly magazines. They're really slow. I mean, like you know, the the uh, when I pitch a story, a big like you know five thousand word story, to New York Times or to Wired, from the time I have the idea to the time I pitch it, to the time I report it, to the time I write it, and then it gets edited and then fact-checked and it comes you know, out in the magazine, is anywhere from at the absolute quickest, like three or four months, to more typically one year to one and a half years. Wow. So, um, oh, my. Yeah, yeah. So what that means is that like I'm never going to be the one who has the first opinion on something. And in fact, I usually just – I've, I've, I've sort of used as a judo move to say, well, if I'm going to be slow, let's be really slow, right? Um, right. And, and the advantage of being really slow is, you know, so a new tech, Facebook starts to become a bit, every new technology goes to this curve. There's like, it comes out and there's just this massive, like, stream of punditry um, where everyone goes, here's what's going to happen. You know, here's my prediction. And this goes on for some days or a week or two or even a month. And then it just sort of dies off because people are sort of tired of speculating. Um, and then – and the thing is, you know, for the first couple of months, there's only a small number of early adopters. There might be a few thousand or maybe if they're lucky, a few hundred thousand users or something. And then one of two things happens. Either the new technology dies because it's just not that interesting. You know, most of the time it dies. It, and, and, and all that speculation was sort of all for naught because nobody ended up using this thing. It just sort of, it just sort of goes away. Um, or in the rare cases, it's a technology that really – you know, has legs that people get interested in it, they find it useful, and then it sort of takes off, and over the next couple of years, you know, there's 50 million people using it. Um, so the great thing about when there's 50 million people using something is you no longer have to, have to sit around stroking your chin and predicting what someone might do. You can observe what they can do. They're doing it. You, you can report it, right? You know, so, like you now have reality. Uh, um, and so I've discovered that if I just sort of wait six months to a year to two years... Uh, you know, I don't have to go through the prediction phase. I can just watch what people are doing, call them up, report on it, and then have something that's really grounded in reality. And often, you know, and, and then you kind of get the cool unexpected things too, like the stuff that no one really thought was going to happen. You sort of see it happening and like, oh, that's cool. It's unexpected. Um, and there's rich storytelling and there's, you know, and maybe some social scientists have studied a bit. So there's some data. And, uh, and then inevitably I publish one of these things and then, and, uh, and I feel, I always worry, well, you know, 
when I come out with this, maybe it's, it's all going to be painfully obvious, you know. Um, but uh, but once <laughs> but once people start using a technology in their everyday lives, it sort of becomes invisible. They stop. They stop thinking about it as if it were as if it were a strange new thing. So if you if if you like me, you come along one and a half to two years in and treat it as if it was strange and new, but have the advantage of not having to guess what's going on, being able to report what's going on. Um, you know, I've found that I can I can do some really fun things um, and and get some really good re- get some really good uh, analysis, and uh, people seem to like it. So so it's sort of, it's sort of a win win, you know. Uh, um, but but yeah, it's this is the advantage I suppose the advantage of of being extremely slow. In technology reporting, that that's that's my that's my technique basically. This is the Telling the Story podcast. I'm Matt Pearl. He is Clive Thompson, writer for Wired, New York, uh, New York Times Magazine, numerous other publications. Author of the book Smarter Than You Think. In the last uh, few minutes that we have here, Clive, I, I wanted to talk with you just a little bit about advice for younger journalists, and and that's kind of the recurring theme on the final part of this podcast. You've been doing this now for I guess what a quarter century, and You've watched journalism evolve as well, and I'm curious as you, uh, from your position in the industry, what do you see and and what do you see for the future in terms of how writing is proliferating in general? Sure, yeah. Um, The... uh uh, that's a really good question. Um, I mean, I, I'm, I'm, this is weird given what I write about. You would think I would have better ideas than this, but I sort of, I think I'm not sure I do because most of what I write about is about how technologies affect, um, non-industrial publishing, like, like, like the amateur expression of our ideas in everyday life. Right. So I, I, I tend to, um, not report on, how media is evolving because that's that's people getting paid to write. I'm actually I, I'm primarily interested in you know the writing that I and other people do when we're just <laughs> when we're just having essentially what is conversations, right? Voluntary um, writing, if you will. Yeah, or or actually the fit, r- 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 scholars of rhetoric would call it life writing, right? Uh, there's a ah, writing you do for work. Good. There's a writing you do. You have to write your memos, professional writing. Then there's life writing when you are in you know when I'm deep in the weeds of a guitar pedal. Uh, um, d- bulletin board uh, talking about uh, the wiring of a crazy old pedal that someone found from the 1960s, and they have the schematics online. Like that's I'm I'm, I'm writing tens of thousands of words, but that's no one's. I'm doing that just because it delights me. Uh, um, nobody's paying me right. for it. Uh, it's it's like sitting in a bar and talking to people about it. So that, that that's what I mostly spend my days thinking about. You know, if but if you were to ask me about okay, so what's happening with um with publishing? I mean, I think I think it's clear that you know. Uh, the traditional industrial publishers are um, uh, uh, sometimes dying completely and, and certainly changing rapidly. So, so in some ways, I often tell people the career that my path took is not uh, is not is not the one you'd necessarily want to try and take. Where I sort of work my way up through smaller marginal magazines to eventually the big magazines, because I'm not super clear that the big magazines that I write for will always be around. Right? You know, I think that I, mm-hmm. I think I think print magazines have been surprisingly. Um, Surprisingly robust compared to newspapers, partly because um, they are luxury products and they are non-fungible. Um, the problem newspapers had was that no one really cares where the news came from. They will wake up in the morning. I want what happened, you know, in the last hour, in the last day. Um, you know, you don't really care where that story came from, Reuters, or from USA Today, or from you know you know, an English language, you know, newspaper in China, you just want to know what the basic facts are. Whereas magazines are 
you know, are not fungible. If you say nobody wakes up in the morning and says, I want to read a magazine, because if I hand you the New Republic, you'll say, well, I was thinking about ESPN. And if I hand you ESPN, you, you might say, well, I was thinking about Vanity Fair. I hand you Vanity Fair. I was thinking about L, you know, uh, or, or shape, you know, like they, they are completely non rivalrous. So people gravitate towards them because they're they're like um, they're like uh, collections for enthusiasts. Nonetheless, you know, like everything else, they're they're suffering advertising pressure. So they're going to change. I mean, my uh, my general advice is this, um, uh, you know, you know, fi figure out what you like to specialize in, develop a specialty, because um, journalism always rewarded specialties because, uh, you know, people had a good beat. But I think in the, in the online world, it, 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 it's even more valuable because, you know, you can you can be you can be known for what you do, not just in the formal journalism you do, but in via your social media presence or your microblogging or blogging or whatnot. You can sort of I mean, if I'd had these, if I'd started, if I was trying to do what I was doing now, I would have started what I, I, mean, I started blogging 12 years ago. I would have I would set up some presence and really try and own an area with with, you know, original research and, and not not just hot takes, you know, uh, which anyone mm. can do. I I, I like the one thing that I think has become abundantly clear when I look around is that like people who can do really serious research will always be um, uh, uh, needed and be valuable because no matter how journalism changes, how it's paid for, whether it's online and bu through BuzzFeed or, you know, um, or through, uh, um, you know, uh, uh, someone who literally has a lucrative Instagram feed or a print publisher like the New York Times or a TV show the world will always be full of people that want to know what's going on in the world. Um, and enough of them will always want to pay for it in some fashion, whether that's with their attention or whether that's with their wallet. Um, and so the, the, the race will always go to the people who know how to generate new information. Um, and it's often very seductive to, to uh, you know, because, because there definitely is a lot of traffic to be had in being someone who can sort of churn out really quick takes on things. Um, but uh, I think to really have a long career in journalism and to not get burned out, uh, it's really good and to just be a good reporter, frankly, and to be a good reporter with some specialties that, that uh, you know, that, that you're the person that publications of whatever type gravitate towards because they know you can really do that work. Um, and same goes if you want to start something up, if you want to start a new, a new thing yourself, you know, like, I mean, there, it's funny, like, you know, Online, there's been this explosion of publications that no one even really knows exist because they serve a niche. And they employ like, you know, nine or ten people making pretty good money. Like, you know, a friend of mine who I met through Twitter, she works for a publication that's devoted entirely to um, the world of, uh, of, of essentially um, online transactions, right? So the, the, there's like, you know, nine or ten of these writers and they just own that area. You know, they, they write a wonderfully reported, fun, interesting coverage of how payments get made online. And like, you know, of course, you know, unless you actually care about that area, you wouldn't even know that thing exists. But if you do care about it, and there's a lot of people that care about that, um, you know, they make a really healthy living doing that thing. So there's like the online world has been fantastic for this explosion of publishers in all these crazy different areas, you know. Um, another friend of mine, the banjo player for my band, is, the, is one of the top editors at Digiday, which is like a publication that started up just recently. It's really only a year or two old, I think. Um, but they're focusing really aggressively and in a smart way and doing amazing reporting on um, 
on uh, online marketing and advertising. And it turns out that, you know, people really need that and they do brilliant stuff. They do great reporting and they do, they do quick stuff and they're, they're, they're growing up leaps and bounds and employing and hiring more people. So, so, uh, you know, I so in one sense, I'm actually very bullish about the long-term future of journalism. Um, and I think that like the general thing is, you know, get good at generating new original information that will always always be valuable in whatever medium you work in and be, you know, be flexible in, in what mediums you work in, because I think that ball is moving and evolving. But as long as you're someone who knows how to report and knows how to do the shoe leather reporting, knows how to make phone calls, know how to read things and summarize them, that skill will always be valuable. And, uh, and I, I did want to ask you one quick question before you go. The, uh, the um, article that I most recently posted of yours, you wrote for Medium, which uh, yes, is right. very much new. And I'm just curious your thoughts on that and what, what you think the evolution of Medium means for journalists, writers, the business, the whole thing. Well, well in, in one sense, Medium uh, – um, uh, I really love Medium for one thing, which is that – so Evan Williams, uh, the, the guy that founded it, um, he's, like a, he's now a serial entrepreneur because he started you know, a blogger. Well, started then, Twitter. Yeah, he started blogger first. Uh, 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 then he started Twitter. And, um, and really what he wanted to do with Medium was to bring back um, a, 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 a really good tool to encourage people to do long form or longer form writing, right? So like, you know, like the, the great boon of microblogging like Twitter in the last seven or eight years was to unleash this sort of distributed conversation. Uh, um, and uh, and it, it's done an amazing job at it. But, you know, a lot of people found that it had, it, you know, that the, the, the sort of um, renaissance uh, um, in these in these tools for sort of doing really cool short form utterances um, you know, left this void, which is where people were like, well, you know, you know, I'd like to write something longer, but it's kind of a pain in the butt to start a blog up and, and, you know, who's going to see it, you know? So he realized, okay, so someone should make like a good looking tool that makes, allows you to make these very quick, make these beautiful, beautifully laid out, um, longer form utterances that has really elegant commenting that doesn't get in the way that, um, that has the social aspect to it. Cause it's tied into Twitter so people can follow you and they can, and your stories can get exposed and seen that way. Um, so this is, I mean, this is great for, for, for both, um, everyday people who are just doing their thinking out loud again, they're that sort of life writing thinking out loud. Um, but it turns out that, you know, it's also, it's also, um, sort of developing, some formal journalism. They're actually, they, they have a couple of different publications. They bought Matter. They have, you know, um, the, the message blog they created, which is like a, a group blog that I write for. Uh, they have, um, they have uh, uh, a couple of different things happening. And, uh, you know, I haven't heard them yet announce how they're going to make money off it. I'm, I'm making the assumption without knowing. I've never actually talked to Williams. Um, I never even interviewed him. Actually, um, I'm assuming it'll be something that's either advertising or sponsorships, or um, maybe there'll be a premium content thing where, like, you know, if you're a corporation running a website or you're, uh, you know, starting an organization, you can pay for a premium version of the medium engine, and people will pay for it, and that'll stuff. Now, I don't know where the money's going to come from, but I'm assuming there's some sort of game plan, or maybe there is no game plan. Maybe the whole thing will collapse. I don't really know. That that can also happen, right? <laughs> um, but in the interim, I think it's been kind of uh, it's it's been for me, it's been really fun using it because it has. Ch- and I think you saw this in that piece that I wrote um, on language was that it's very visual because I included all these big screenshots of this what this writing looks like, and right. and it's challenged me. 
to um, to become someone who knows how to write, but also to design a good looking thing. Because you know, there is no staff person designing that for me. That's me. I just I have to learn how to like do that. And this is a really cool thing to to you know. This is I think something that again journalists are going to just. By de- I mean, all younger ones, many of them are by default good at it, but I think it's a thing that all journalists should be, have to come good at is working these different mediums and tying them all together into these really compelling um, these really compelling stories, these really compelling things to look at and rummage around in. So it's been fun for me because what I've started it, – and it's, it's, it's actually changed the nature of the things I think to write about because you know when I'm writing for Wired and writing for the New York Times magazine, I am just handing in text. There will be pictures, but all I can do is text, whereas with Medium, I can – I can think about ideas that l- require visual or audio or um, or other elements. For example, there's a, there's a different medium website that I'm writing a piece for, a long feature about because I'm a guitarist and I'm interested in guitar pedals, the birth of a new guitar pedal. And I'm basically mm. reporting on someone who's designing a new guitar pedal from scratch. And it's sort of about you know how do they think about shaping the sound? What's this thing going to sound like? And, 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 you know, what sort of circuitry do they use? Where do they find these crazy transistors from Russia that will make that sound? How do they put together? How do they experiment? And, you know, one of the things I'm trying to do is, as this thing gets built, um, to get different audio files of what it sounds like as it's emerging. So you'll be able to, as you listen, as you read the story, listen to the evolution of the pedal and what it does to the guitar as it goes along, right? So, you know, I, I, I'm, you know, like, the, the, it changes the way I report and what I think to gather. Because if I was writing about the story, you know, for the Times Magazine, I would literally just be, like, trying to describe that sound, you know? And I would do a, as good a job as I can. But there's something really fun about both trying to describe myself and saying, listen to the exact same guitar riff played at, like, five different points in the evolution of this pedal. Yeah. Well, Clive, thank you so much for uh, joining me. I always like to close with that final, uh, that famous journalist's question. Is there anything we haven't touched on that you wanted to add? <laughs> oh, my goodness. There are so many things we could talk about because this is such interesting stuff. But, no, I actually think you, uh, you nailed all the big ones, my friend. That was, that was a good conversation. I liked it. Very good. Well, Clive Thompson, thank you so much for joining me on this episode of the Telling the Story podcast. I had a great time. Talk to you soon. Okay, and the Telling the Story blog updates every Monday and Wednesday. The website is tellingthestoryblog.com. Rate and review this podcast on iTunes, and thank you for listening to this episode of the Telling the Story podcast. We'll see you next time.